Hello again, and welcome back to the Slow Flowers Podcast with Deborah Prinzing, episode 393. This is the weekly podcast about American flowers and the people who grow and design with them. It's all about making a conscious choice, and I invite you to join the conversation and the creative community as we discuss the vital topics of saving our domestic flower farms and supporting a floral industry that relies on a safe, seasonal, and local supply of flowers and foliage. This podcast is brought to you by slowflowers.com, the free nationwide online directory to florists, shops, and studios who design with American-grown flowers and to the farms that grow those blooms. It's the conscious choice for buying and sending flowers. And thank you to our lead sponsor, Florist Review Magazine. I'm delighted to serve as contributing editor for Slow Flowers Journal, found in the pages of Florist Review. It's the leading trade magazine in the floral industry and the only independent periodical for the retail, wholesale, and supplier market. Take advantage of the special subscription offer for members of the Slow Flowers community at deborahprinzing.com, where you can also find the show notes for today's episode 393. Our first sponsor spotlight focuses on Johnny's Selected Seeds, an employee-owned company that provides our industry the best flower, herb, and vegetable seeds supplied to farms large and small and even backyard cutting gardens like mine. Check them out at johnnysseeds.com and follow a link to my latest article for the Johnny's Advantage newsletter, which is all about succession planning and planting for flower farms. Our theme for 2019, 50 States of Slow Flowers, continues today with Holly Duncan of Georgia-based Floretry. So listen for our conversation at the close of this episode. As an avid flower gardener, I love learning from the pros, flower farmers whose methods and practices often influence my own backyard steps to grow and cut flowers. Some of the techniques used on commercial flower farms, though, are not in my toolbox, which only makes me hungrier to learn from those growing flowers day in and day out. No-till farming is one such technique. I've heard flower farmers discuss the no-till approach. I also thought I knew what the term meant. However, thanks to today's guest and his new book, I now have much more understanding and much deeper insights about the term and why it's one worth considering for your flower-growing enterprise. Our guest today is Andrew Mefford, author of the brand new book, The Organic No-Till Farming Revolution, High Production Methods for Small-Scale Farmers. Andrew is the editor of Growing for Market magazine. He has spent 15 years working on farms in six states, including a year working on a no-till research farm. He worked for seven years in the research department at Johnny Selected Seeds. Andrew travels around the world consulting with researchers and farmers on the best practices in greenhouse growing and sustainable agriculture. He's the author of the Greenhouse and Hoop House Growers Handbook, and he has a passion for cooking and promoting local farming. Andrew lives and farms in Cornville, Maine. I first met Andrew virtually after he acquired Growing for Market from founder Lynn Bazinski. Later, I contributed a few articles about Slow Flowers topics to Growing for Market and had the pleasure of witnessing Andrew's passion for farming education and advocacy through that process. 
I wanted Andrew to come onto the Slow Flowers podcast to talk about his new book, especially after Slow Flowers member Jonathan Lice of Springforth Farm posted on Instagram that he and Megan and their no-till flower farming methods are included in the new book. I'm so pleased that Andrew interviewed and profiled a number of Slow Flowers members about their farming practices, growing flowers for this essential guide. I appreciate that he considers floral agriculture as an equally viable pursuit for anyone who wants to farm. It's not all about veggies and produce in this man's view. In fact, Growing for Market, inspired by founder Lynn Bozinski, has always made space in its pages for flower farming. Before I turn to my extended conversation with Andrew, I want to let you know that New Society Publishers has donated a copy of No-Till Farming for us to give away. Listen for details on how you can enter to win a copy. And if you don't win, you can enjoy a generous promo code to purchase the book. I'll have photos and links about the organic no-till farming revolution and Andrew Mefford to share in today's show notes at deborahprinzing.com for episode 393. Let's get started. Welcome back to the Slow Flowers Podcast with Deborah Prinzing, and I'm so excited today to introduce Andrew Mefford, and Andrew is uh, kind of a peer in the publishing world. He uh, is the editor and publisher of Growing for Market Magazine, which many of you probably subscribe to. I, I've contributed a few articles, and I'm happy to have you on the show today. Andrew, Hi. Hey, Deborah. Very glad to be here. Thanks so much for having me on. Yeah. And you are, uh, we're on Skype and you're, we're speaking, I'm speaking from Seattle and you're speaking from where in Maine? I'm in the tiny little town that I live in in Maine called Cornville, Maine. It's right in the, right in the center of the state. Very oh. cold and windy here today. <laughs> yes, I believe it. Well, uh, I'm so happy we could do this. You have a brand new book out. This is not your first book, but um, this one caught my attention because some of our Slow Flowers members had been posting about it. It's called The the Organic No-Till Farming Revolution, which is cool to talk about a revolution in farming. So tell me, what is, what is no-till farming and, you know, what, what is this book all about? Yeah, well, that's a, that's a great question, um, Deborah. And, um, we, you know, what exactly no-till is? There, there is a lot of variation uh, between growers. Um, you know, the reason that I wrote the book is because I saw all these growers doing uh, interesting things using methods that they, in many cases, had developed on their own farms. And there's some variation between the methods. You know, one of the questions that I get frequently is, well, how how much, you know, how much soil disturbance is no tillage? And and I come at it from a perspective of it's not an orthodoxy. You know, mm-hmm. there's no there's no no-till certification. Different people handle it different ways. Some people are sort of uh, a, a very um, taken approach of almost like no steel in the soil. You know, they're mm-hmm. doing almost no soil disturbance. And then on the other the other end of things, there are people who 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 call their practices no-till. Many of whom are using things like a tilther or even a um, a rotary harrow, right? So sort of like a ro- a rototiller, but instead of um, instead of egg beatering through the soil, um, it's a, it's a vertical kind of soil disturbance and using a, um, using a, a, a rotary harrow, um, very shallowly, like one or one or two inches. And so, I mean, to me, it, I, I'm not here to judge people and say, you're not, <laughs> you're no till you're not no till. Uh, uh, I, really m- my perspective in writing the book is that I think that growers have a lot to gain 
even just reducing tillage, mm-hmm. uh, even if they don't get all the way to, um, to, to not, to not tilling at all, there, there are a lot of benefits to, to even just reducing tillage, which of course are, would be even more if you can get, get to the point of, um, of completely eliminating tillage. And so I think that, I think that what most people, um, uh, are looking for as far as advantages with no-till are just reduced passes over the field, right? Uh, I know that when we were, we're growing, we were growing with tillage, we would sometimes moldboard plow and then um, disc harrow, uh, maybe also spring tooth harrow, then still probably rototill once or twice. And so um, before you put a single plant in the ground, you've made four or five, possibly even more passes over the, um, over the, over the ground. Just, just to get to the point of planting. So, okay. so, so are these um, the term till? Does it mean that there is some kind of mechanical disruption of your planting soil? Is that is that what till means? Or uh, I'm I'm thinking about the florists who are listening to this, going, "What is he talking about?" Because I, you're, <laughs> the farmers are all down with with this these terminology. But let's just simplify till. Is is that what you have to do to get a seed or a plant in the ground? Is is disturb the soil? Yeah, I guess that would be fair to say that by tillage, we mean soil disturbance. And so, so I I would say that there are people in this book who are doing really minimal soil disturbance that as far as I'm concerned, there's still, there's still no till because Mm -hmm. I think it, there's a huge difference between disturbing the upper inch or even two of the soil versus the, the really deep, the deep tillage kind of uh, practices with either moldboard plowing or deep rototilling. Mm-hmm. Um, there, there's a huge difference between just barely disturbing the surface of the soil and 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 going really deep uh, with something like that. And then there are some people in this book who who do really no soil disturbance and they're really just building up. They're almost like um, layering compost and other mulches onto their soil uh, year to year, maybe broad forking a little bit when the when the beds um, when the beds get tighter. But mm. one of the other advantages of no-till is that um, if you stop doing tillage, uh, the t- tillage burns up the organic matter in your soil. And so, if you stop doing tillage and continue adding organic matter, uh, these growers that I talked to who had been doing it for a long time, they just had these wonderful fluffy beds it was almost like they had fields full of potting soil because they they had stopped burning up their organic matter and continued adding it uh some of these growers they had um they had been trying to raise their organic matter levels through cover cropping and composting and all those kinds of things and it would just stay flat you know it was it was very difficult for them to increase the amount of organic matter in their soil uh, year to year and that once they stopped tilling uh, mm. Even if they didn't they they kept adding the same amount of compost, they would see those organic matter levels start coming up, which of course makes everything grow better. Well, in your uh, that makes a lot of sense, and I love the word fluffy. And I'm just thinking about like the dimensionality and texture that you, you that this this these results can you know produce for farms. It must be so much more pleasant to to plant and to work in. So. Uh, you're already painting a picture for me. I, I, I want to just go back to something you said in the introduction. I, I have here on my desk of the I have the book with me, and you wrote, "Just this is really helpful to think about, uh, Andrew. No-till is as much about climate change as it is about soil health, as it is about farm profitability. So it feels like those are kind of the three motivating factors for people 
in at various levels to get to 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 adopt no-till practices. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. There's, you know, people talk about the triple bottom line and I would say that there are there that no-till is a really interesting phenomenon right now because I think it's getting at it's getting at all three of those things, right? Everybody wants their farm to be profitable, but people are also worried about climate change in um, people want people need some way to to feel like they're they're um, they're dealing with that on on their own farm. Mm. So you know when I when I first got interested in no till about 15 years ago or so, it was really because I was working on this this really big farm actually out close to Seattle, working on this big organic farm about 100 acres, and I was just driving the tractor way too much, mm. right? Because organic farm and and there were a lot of weeds. And so they kept them in check with cultivation. And I realized, you know, I, I'm, I'm a plant nerd. I, the, the reason I'm in agriculture is to mess around with plants, mm. just not an equipment person. And so I realized that I, 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 I just was spending way too much time on the tractor. And so I initially looked at no-till more for the benefit of being able to run a farm without spending my whole day on the tractor. Although this time around, um, Lately, I, I, I've been thinking much more about the climate change aspect because one thing people may or may not know is that um, when you till the soil so deeply, um, really at any level, but this just happens more deeply if, if the deeper you're tilling. So when you're tilling, you are essentially um, injecting a bunch of air in, into the soil and disturbing the disturbing the, 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 the communities that are, that are in the soil as well. And so one of the things that introducing all that air into the soil is doing is that it oxidizes the organic matter, which is there in the soil, which is one of the things that why tillage is, is effective because, um, oxidizing that organic matter releases fertility, but it also, it also burns up that organic matter in the process. And so, um, a lot of that organic matter is carbon, and so you whip the you whip the the oxygen into the soil, and so the carbon in the soil bonds with the oxygen, and you get um, it essentially off gases mm. uh, CO two. So a lot of the carbon, a lot of the additional carbon that's in the atmosphere, um, is is from agriculture. It, we, we, most of us know agri agriculture in several different ways is is a is a very serious contributor to climate change, and so. Um, that's one wow. thing that that people can do that is going to help them grow because um, increasing the organic matter in the soil is one thing that'll make your your plants um, your plants grow better. But um, if it's if if you're increasing the organic matter also because you're not burning up burning it up in the first place, then you're also you're really starting to sequester carbon. Uh, and the idea is that over time you could you could really build up uh, build up the organic matter. Uh, in your fields and also in, and sequester carbon at the same mm. time. Mm -hmm. So, you know, and I think, I think, I think, uh, you know, I, I've got a five-year-old and a seven-year-old. I, I, every single day I, I wonder about what the world's going to be like uh, climate-wise when, when they've grown up. And people might say, well, you know, you've got a little one, two or three acre organic farm. Uh, what's that going to change? Well, I think every, we all need ways to, to feel like we're, we're being a part of the problem. Uh, sorry. The solution, <laughs> right. Exactly. We all need ways to feel like we're a part of the solution. So it doesn't matter if your farm is is one acre or five hundred acres. You know, we all we all need to to feel like we're we're doing something about it. And I so, agree. Oh, that's that's really encouraging. And um, 
you before we turned on the recorder or started the episode, you you mentioned something about like first learning about no till fifteen years ago, but that it was at the time really adopted by larger farms, and that now in those past fifteen years, you've probably witnessed, of course, owning growing for market, uh, you probably really witnessed this explosion of I won't I don't know if micro farms the right word, but but farms under five acres that are really doing great things, and that. That method you learned 15 years ago wasn't really applicable to someone with a little bit of acreage, right? Right. That that was that was exactly the problem. You know, I came uh, I came off of working on this really big um, organic farm and deciding. Well, for one thing, I decided it was probably a larger scale than I really wanted to farm on. But my other thing was that um, that I I just didn't want to be so reliant on on machinery. Um, both both from a, a, a um, emissions perspective, because I, I was I was certainly conscious of and thinking about climate change 15 years ago, but I was thinking at front of it more from an emissions perspective, just that I don't want to I don't want to have a tractor running all day long uh, on my farm. And I, I don't want to be the person driving that tractor anyway. So, you know, when I got interested in no till, uh, I, so I'm originally from Virginia. And so what I was doing, uh, I didn't grow up on a farm, but I I had a farm one one generation back in my family mm, mm-hmm. in Pennsylvania, which is where we originally started our farm, and and we, we had to move over the years. But um, the idea was that I was going off and working on other people's farms uh, in the in the summertime to learn how to do it, and then I was coming back and working working jobs over the winter to try to save up money and, and start a farm. And so uh, about 15 years ago, I had heard of this idea of no-till, but it was sort of like I couldn't even imagine it. You know, so it's like how how are you supposed to put a plant in the ground that hasn't been tilled? And so, <laughs> right. Yeah, it's kind of an oxymoron. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's like I I, I like the idea, but but I couldn't imagine how this was this was happening. So 15 years ago, if you searched no-till on the internet. Um, the main thing going on was the uh, the the method developed by the Rodale Institute and the USDA NRCS, um, which is uh, I call the roller crimper method because uh, you basically grow a really lush cover crop and then um, and then you you use a an a, a implement called a roller crimper that that mashes the cover crop down and, and it, what it does is it, it kills the um, it kills the cover crop without herbicides. And so it's pretty nifty because what you've done is you've grown your mulch in place. And Interesting. Uh, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. So so um, at the time, uh, one of the one of the cooperators on this this Rodale NRCS method was Virginia Tech. So there was one professor named Ron Morse who was doing a lot of research into organic no-till uh, there at Virginia Tech. And so I thought, well, hey, I'm from Virginia. What I was doing every winter is going back to Virginia t- to work. And so I I called him up and it was like, hey, can I just come down to Blacksburg and talk to you about what you're doing? And he said, yeah, come on down. And so I talked to him and he ended up offering me a job, which I was I was thrilled about because he was he was using this method that I was thinking that I wanted to use mm-hmm. to start my farm the following year. So I went down, great experience working with him, very smart guy learned a lot. And I also realized in, in the course of learning this method, it really wasn't going to work for my farm because we started out by leasing three acres from my grandma on her farm in Pennsylvania. And so, um, that what I realized was that the, the roller crimper method works really well, but it, it's, it works much better for big, um, for big plantings of crops. Like mm. if you had, if you had a big, uh, a big planting you wanted to do, of all, all one one crop, it, it would work a lot better because 
um, it, it doesn't give you a whole lot of small planting windows because you have to kill the crop organically without herbicides. Uh, you, you kind of have, mostly you have a spring, a spring planting window and the, the, the kind of farm that we were starting first off, we, uh, we were growing some flowers and also a lot of different vegetables. And so we would have these weekly plantings, right? Uh. Of salad mix and, and radishes and different things. And so that doesn't, it's not very compatible with, um, with, with the, uh, with multiple different successions of, of the same crop. And so I really kind of forgot about it for, mm. for, for almost 15 years, you know, started a farm, had kids, you know, it's yeah. life goes on. Right. And, you, and know, you know what you referred to about, like, I just, I just, I'm constantly learning like these diversified small flower farms. They are always succession planting. I mean, that's like how you get your productivity, right? Yes, ab- absolutely. And and that I mean that goes to one of the advantages of no-till is okay. because if you if you can if you don't have to make multiple different passes over over the field after your your let's say your first crop in a bed is done and you want to move on to the second, um, it can take multiple passes to, to get it ready if, if you're doing the more conventional tillage. And so how to flip a bed, you know, is, is a really big issue in no-till. Mm-hmm. And so um, one of the things that, that uh, people can do with, with the no-till is a lot of them will try to replant a bed the same day or, you know, within a day because there's a few different methods for flipping a bed, but one of them uh, is to clip out all the above ground part of parts of the plant so that even the roots are still in the ground. But then you look at the bed and the bed has been cleaned off of, of all the all the plant material. And then people will either just go ahead, sprinkle on some fertilizer and sprinkle on some compost. Or if they need a finer seed bed, they may go over it uh, with a tilther which is is a is probably the lightest tillage implement you possibly could use. I don't I I mean it's almost too light to call I wouldn't really even call it a tillage implement. Um mm. if people aren't familiar with the tiller, it's this little it's this little tool that I I believe was developed by Elliot Coleman along with Johnny's where um it's it it, it is uh it's kind of like a mini micro rototiller mm-hmm. but it, it's run by a cordless drill. Oh, so I've seen those on uh, videos online. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So it looks almost like a wheel hose. So it's this very light thing. You could swing it around, you know, so it's two wooden handles attached to this, the the tiniest little tiller you ever saw. So it's really, I don't know if it's even, I don't know if it's even going down an inch, you know, it's, it won't, it won't prepare sod or anything like that. You know, the idea is that if, if you, if you have a pretty good bed to start with a pretty clean bed, um, you can use it to just kind of rough up the top little bit of soil to give you enough um, enough of a, um, a seed bed that you could put right. you could put seeds in. Like enough enough depth to maybe stick your finger down an inch or something like that. Yeah, yeah, mm. exactly. So, so what? Before we go on, I want to ask you about some of the the case studies in the in the book because what one of the cool things about. Uh, the way you storytell, and I'm I'm very much the same way. Is I like to tell other people's stories, and you've you've interviewed dozens of uh, farms all around the country uh, for their to talk about their particular you know adaptation of no-till. So uh, it's cool, but I want to know about your farm. Are you actually farming now, or are you just growing food for your own family? Because you have so much so many irons in the fire, Andrew. Yeah. Um, well, th- th- that's a great question, Deborah. And I, the, the reason this book had to be this way, I thought, was because I, I don't think you can write the no-till book. Mm. You know, 
think um, what intrigued me about these growers is that they had in many cases developed their own methods, sometimes sometimes um, working off of what other people had done and sometimes just working in complete isolation and just thinking about how how they wanted to farm and, and making it that way. So um, yeah, I, yeah, I still have one drop farm in central Maine. Our farm has changed a lot over the years, a lot of it due to taking over growing for market actually, because, um, I, uh, in 2015, I took that over and that was also the first year that in about a decade that we did not sell produce at the, at the farmer's market, mainly because I just, I knew I was going to have my hands full with the magazine and boy, did I ever, I mean, that was the 20, 20, um, 15 was, was probably the busiest, um, year of my life. But, uh, so we still run our farm. We are currently doing more nursery. Uh, we, the same year that we took over growing for market, we got the, the opportunity to take over an established nursery business in our area. So a very, a very diverse nursery grower in our area, just wanted to cut back, needed Mm. to slow down. And so we sent, we had, we had always done a lot of nursery just because we live in a short season area and it was a great way for us to get some, some cash flow early in the season, right? It was to bring one of the first things we would bring to the farmer's market was plants. So like, like seedlings or starts for other people to use in their gardens. Yes. Okay. Yeah. That kind of nursery. So yes, we currently, we're ner- mostly growing vegetable and flower seedlings for other people. But another reason for that is because I, I am trying to retrofit our farm. Uh, as I said, we, we stopped doing um, retail produce and I'm, I'm really, you know, that's a, that's a change that I'm ready to make. I'm, I'm trying to retool our farm to go back to selling some produce, but I want it to be more wholesale. Um, mm-hmm. One thing that, that I've certainly seen here in this area that I've heard from a lot of the growers through growing for market is that the traditional channels for, um, for, um, for local, local farms mm-hmm. are becoming saturated as, you know, farmers markets are, are, are more competitive if you can even get into one. Um, it seems like in a lot of areas, CSA growth has kind of, um, is kind of plateaued. And so, um, I think, I, I, I realized just not everybody's going to come to the farmer's market. I think, I think when I was younger, I thought it was sort of like, I just had to convince everybody to come to the farmer's market. And now I've realized, you know what, a, a very large part of the population is just not going to come there. And so I've decided what I'm trying to do is retrofit our farming technologies to no-till and then take it, go, go to the, the grocery store. You know, but what you've just described, Andrew, is is such a somewhat of a universal issue. You're absolutely right that um, more than ever, at least on the flower farming side, I'm I'm impressed with uh, the innovation for changing your distribution model, and 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 that that ironically that farm to market model used to be maybe the perceived only op- option, and now wholesale. Um, creating your own retail outlet, having, um, you know, events and classes and selling direct to, uh, you know, business to business, like direct florists, all of those things. And I, I suppose for you with food, it would be selling to restaurants. I mean, all of those, there's so many options and people can be really creative and tailoring their, their sales channels to what works for their farm. But I didn't think about how it related to going back to, well, how you farm also determines your sales channels. Um, it sounds like that's what you're kind of in the midst of doing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, and also it, I do want to, I do want to just make sure that I've got the methods right. In fact, I mean, I'm looking out the window right now and we have, 
oh, I don't know, several feet of snow cover right now. <laughs> I, I live in an area where we get, it's pretty typical to get at least 100 inches of snow over the course of a winter for us. And wow. so and it's been a snowy winter this winter. Wow. So, Jeez. But so out there under those, uh, under the snow, I have some tarps right now. Some, so I have, I have some, some black, uh, landscape fabric down that I put down at the end, uh, la end, end of the summer and, or last fall, mm -hmm. uh, because one of the, so one of the interesting things about no-till is that, um, in, in the sort of, uh, tillage world, it, I, I'm, I'm more used to seeing people using the non-biodegradable mulches. So plastic, right. I'm, I'm used to seeing growers, um, using plastic mulches, while the plant is growing there. So right. the, the examples of that would be the, you know, the black plastic on the bed beds that, that, that plants are transplanted through, or that the thing that I know is popular with a lot of flower growers to take the landscape fabric and either burn holes, right. uh, holes or, or buy them pre-punched. I know, I know a lot of places sell pre-punched landscape fabric and just plant, plant through the holes for your, your weed control. Yep. Well, the, the interesting thing is that in in most of these no-till systems where they're using plastic non-biodegradable mulches they're mostly using those before or after the crop and not having them in place while the crop um is going so what i'm thinking of here is what people call occultation which is is the, the real the fancy word for tarping you know putting down putting down an opaque tarp and so <laughs> i so was going to ask you what occultation means yeah. so that's good to know <laughs> Well, so that's it's something that uh, J.M. Fortier talks about in his book, The, the Market Gardener, uh, which is really great. And so and he uh, says that it, it, it so that term occultation apparently is a French term. So apparently tar tarping has been used in Europe for a long time to, to suppress weeds. Um, and also kind of act as a placeholder. And so this is this is what I'm trying trying out out there under the snow. I have some tarps that I put down <laughs> because the, you know the the beauty of tarping is is you put the tarp down and you walk away. You know, as as long as it doesn't blow away, there's nothing else to do. And th those are the kind of solutions that I'm looking for. I'm looking for the kind of solutions that have the least amount of 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 work input on my part because you know time is our most precious resource. And so right. I, I you know I'm looking. I'm looking to find the things that are going to get tasks done on the farm uh, with, with the minimum of input of my time. So my so th this is what I'm trying is to see how well how well this will work uh, for me to prep beds by. Um, so I, I have some area that I'd grown in and hadn't grown in in a couple of years. And so I wanted to see how well it would be prepped if I, all I did was put a tarp down, walk away, let it snow. And so my idea is that when the snow starts melting in a couple months, um, go out there, pull pull the tarp up because now the tarp has been down for months. the The idea is that that several generations of weed seeds could could have germinated under there because it's so it's a black it's a black uh, it's a black tarp. So the soil the soil heats up. the The tarp traps the moisture down there. The weed seeds germinate and then um, and then they die because they they don't get any sunlight. And so th this is this is a pretty common principle in no till. The idea being if you can germinate your weed seeds, and then you don't you don't churn any more weed seeds up through tillage. Mm -hmm. If you can just get that get get the weed seeds killed off in the top layer of your soil, and then just build up from there, then your your weed pressure will go down a, a lot over time. And so that's that's what I've got got going on in my own farm, is uh is the um 
is the occultation. I mean, the other the other way that 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 no-till growers are using uh, plastic mulches uh, are is solarization. So um, same same concept, but just using clear clear uh, clear mulch. And so um, the idea is that you put down, let's say, an old piece of greenhouse plastic. If it's a sunny day, and I've had growers tell me temperatures in the 70s or above that they can get, they can kill the weeds remaining in a bed after a crop in 24 hours wow. if, if they have sun, sun, sunny and seven, uh, 70 degree conditions because it's the it's the greenhouse effect with with very little airspace, right? So um, I know uh, the solar one grower, the solar temperature just jumps up exponentially then. Yeah, yeah, it just cooks cooks the very top of the bed. Um, <laughs> I'm just laughing because last last fall I bought one of those like um, flame weeders. <laughs> oh yeah, I'm mm-hmm. super afraid to even use it. I think you need adult supervision, but it's just to get the <laughs> the, the weeds out of my gravel paths. And um, yeah. I'm thinking, oh, I wonder if I could just lay down plastic and have a safer method of killing those weeds and not starting my house on fire or something. But I get where you're going with this. It's like the, the uh, method is solo tech and look what it's achieving. It's amazing. Yeah. It's, it's one of those things where um, it's this, the, the solution is so, is so simple. I think people, people didn't think of it um, just, just because it's so, it's so simple. Um, in huh. fact, um, one, so speaking of super simple solutions, if I if I can jump ahead, yeah, uh, there was so so um, I was out visiting with Bear Mountain Farm out right. in Oregon. Yeah, I was going to ask you about them. Denise and Tony Gates at Bear Mountain Farm, they're they're super talented flower farmers, and so you went and did a site visit with them. Yes, yeah, they were so awesome. Um, I got there on a, a rainy October um, day in 2017, and in fact, they were they were uh, expecting their first frost of the season the the, the day that I was there, and so um, they they yeah they're they're awesome. Um, they were so generous with their time, um, showing me around and everything, and that's that's how I tried to do this book. Um, I I tried to do it with all the interviews from visits. And in, mm-hmm. in a couple of cases, it didn't work out. But but in most cases, I got to the farm because I, I wanted to be able to take pictures and, you know, ask questions on the ground. And so so um, w- when you brought up simple solutions, they, they just came to mind because um, they were so relaxed that day, even though they were about to have their first frost, you know, they were pretty on top of things. And so um, Tony took me out and was showing me some of their growing beds. And um, so he was showing me how I, I think they had the simplest, just most sublime bed flip technique that I've, I've ever seen, uh, because w- what they did is uh, in a bed as we were there at the end of the season. So he showed me a bed full of uh, sunflowers or something. I don't remember what. So it doesn't really matter. So there's they had a bed of flowers that had come to the end of the season. And so there's a lot of there's a lot of plant matter. The, you know the plants. The plants are for the most part still there, even though the flowers have been taken so like off. Like the, the stems, the, the lower foliage, that sort of thing. That's still above the ground. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, you got a lot of leftover plant material and some, you know, some bad looking blooms at that point. Mm-hmm. But most of the blooms had already been picked. And so, so Tony, uh, he was telling me how, um, you, you know, they're at the end of the season, 
Um, even though it's not particularly cold where they are, they're going into the part of the year where it's they don't get enough sunlight to, to do another crop in that particular bed. Mm. So he, showed, he told me what he does. He goes in. If it needs to be knocked down, I, I, he'll take a, a scythe or something and just kind of knock knock the, the vegetation down and then just come out with a tarp and just tarp the whole thing down. Wow. He doesn't even worry about take, taking the, the, the debris out of the bed because he just lets it compost in place. Wow. And I'm, you know, we tend to have these, I, I think we, uh, we overcomplicate things for ourselves a lot of the time. You know, we think, ah, I need to get all this stuff out of the here and take it somewhere else to compost it. And so, you know, they realized we can just, we can just compost it in place if, if they're not in a hurry. And so, um, th they showed me how they use these tarps that are wider than the actual bed is because they plan on, um, sometimes tarping the bed with a lot of residue, mm -hmm. right? And so, the bed is kind of crowned once you see it. Right. And you've got some good photos in uh, throughout the book of what these techniques look like. Yeah. <laughs> so and, and cool. And they've, they've also been doing it for long enough, though. They have, I would say their soil and their beds are very alive. So they've got a lot of, they've got a lot of microorganisms and fungus and everything living in, in their beds. Um, and they were contrasting that with the, when they got that property, they said that it was, I think it was, um, very low in organic matter and the soil was just not very alive. And I make this point because a lot of these methods in no-till, it seems like the, the longer people do them, the more success they have um, with them. And part of it is because you're relying on the soil life to do some of the work for you. In fact, Tony and Denise, they have this great name for the soil life. They call it their ground peeps. <laughs> they, they're like they're like their little, you know, aren't there's tiniest farm workers out there breaking the stuff down. Like little mic little microorganisms that live in the soil, you mean? Yes. Yeah. All the mic yeah, the the um the 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 huge array of things that live in, in, in the soil. That's awesome. Um, that I don't Yeah, and so because I think they even made this point that if somebody started out with really dead soil, right, that had either been abused or had a lot of chemicals on it or a lot of tillage or whatever. So if, if people started out with a lot with very dead soil, they might not have um, have as good luck with that at first because they're relying on that life that's there in the soil to 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 break to break that organic matter down. Right. Well, I guess uh, that, I guess that message is just to you have to just start. And even if you only start in one section, just be patient. Because if, you, if you're, I guess, habitual about it, you will eventually see improvement. Yeah, exactly. I think that's a good point is that a lot of these no-till methods, um, there may be some transition disruption. You know, like, uh, for example, if, if you're used to cultivating out your weeds and then, then you start going no-till, um, you may have more weeds that, that first year mm. because – as that you have to kind of get on top of because you can't, you may have a, you know, a very robust weed seed bank in there, uh, in the top part of the soil. And that the first couple of years may be rough because all those weed seeds are, um, are wanting to germinate. But if you can stick with the program that it shall go down over time, because then you, then once, once you've, once you've, germinated and killed those weeds in the top couple inches of the soil and you stop churning them up, the, the pressure should go down over mm, time. Mm. So good. Um, hey, let's talk about a couple of the other farms. you. First of all, how many farms did you profile in the book? 
There are 17. So okay. there are 17. And, you know, the format of the book is 17 interviews. And in the, in the beginning, I do c kind of like an overview. I almost think of it like a quick start guide. Like, I guess I, I, I put um, I try to make sense of all the things and give sort of an introduction to, of all the methods. But I thought really the important part is to let the growers talk because I, I, I realize that there are there are differences here um, based on location and soils and all these different things. And mm. so I imagine people not so much going out and doing exactly what I talk about or even exactly what any one of these growers talks about, but more like a smorgasbord, you mm. know, take take one or two techniques from one grower and and adapt some techniques from the other grower and, and, and oh. really make it their own. Yeah, you've got so many resources in here. You visited uh, Hedda Borstrom of Full Bloom Flower Farm and Floral Design in uh, Sonoma County, Sebastopol, California. I've been to that farm, too. So uh, what like what did you take? You know, does everybody have like a little lesson that you can draw from and that that is an example that that um, either you want to share or you are trying yourself? I know that Hedda's growing herbs as well as cut flowers and foliages on her farm. Um, but she sounds like she's definitely adopted the, the no-till method for her place. Yeah, she she um, she seems. I think she's gone completely no till, and and I will say I did not get a chance to visit Hedda. Oh, you didn't. Oh, I'm so sorry about that. We'll have to get you out there next year. Yeah, well, well, Deborah, let me tell you really quickly what happened is that so I uh, I did kind of like a West Coast swing um, in in the in October of 2017 specifically with with visits. That's when I visited Bear Mountain, and I was there in Sonoma County, California, um, hoping to visit Hedda. Unfortunately, the night that I arrived was the night that the wildfires <sighs> broke out in, in 2017. I believe what, it. Yeah, right, right. It was it was so close. I was I was pretty worried that I was going to get evacuated from the hotel that I was staying in. So um, so I went there to visit with Hedda and and then I got a text from her the next morning saying that, the you know, the farms were on fire right in her area and and she she was helping some friends luckily she, her her farm did not burn right but she had to go help some help out some other friends and so um i got to visit some other farms in in that area there's kind of a hot spot down there in the sebastopol area um with Hedda and singing uh -huh. frog farm and uh hillview farm and a couple others so yeah i i, I was really bummed because because Hedda's Hedda's farm looked beautiful i really would have liked to see it so we ended up catching up uh, we did a, <laughs> an interview over the phone well but, thanks for being um, honest but i just have to say i'm getting kind of flashbacks because that october of 2017 Hedda and another flower farmer flower farmer friend of hers, uh, Kate, Kate Rowe of Aztec Dahlias, they had agreed to do a fashion photo shoot for my Slow Flowers uh, American Flowers Week campaign. And they it was right in that window of time. And they photographed this beautiful model with a beautiful dress made out of dahlias and sage leaves that had a design. And they were texting me photos of the farmers, the photographer, and the models wearing serious uh like gear like face masks just to breathe between the photo shoots and i've just i'm having shivers remembering how dangerous it was and so it's just such a shame that you got caught up in that but um I, what caught me what caught my attention about her uh your interview with her is that she did um you talked about how she used to cover crop and like she's moved on from that method because of no till right 
Yeah, well, that's, I mean, and that's interesting. That's a lot of growers, it's a lot of growers who are doing no-till don't cover crop, and, and but a lot of them still do. Okay, so and it's I, sort of like, uh, it's not bad to cover crop then. Right, right. It's, I mean, cover cropping is still great. I think that one of the things a lot of these growers who can do, who, who can flip a bed inside of 24 hours, they're, they're basically hot bedding their crops. You know, uh. they're not, there's not really... There's not as much of a window for for cover crops, and I and that's somewhat. I know some growers think that's a bad thing, that they're say um, th- some some growers think that's not a good idea to to be growing um, constantly. On the other hand, I think I, I mean I'm I'm not completely against it. I feel like growers need to find the solutions that make sense for their farm because I know Hedda. For example, I think she only she has about an acre that she's growing on. So if you have if that's the amount of space that you have, um, then I th- I think you kind of have to you kind of have to make use of it. Yeah, and, um, it's back to I your re- back to your point about becoming profitable, and maybe maybe you don't have the luxury of letting something go fallow with cover crop for a season. Maybe that's just not an option for you. For your farm. Right. I mean, it's it's kind of like it's kind of like vegetable growers who do the tomato, 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 tomato rotation in their hoop houses. It's like if you've only got one hoop house and that's your most your most profitable crop. Well, you're probably going to going to do that. But I feel like part of the so part of the problem with 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 um, with not cover cropping and the reason that it's a U.S. Uh, USDA organic uh, uh, practice it's because if you're doing a lot of tillage and you're not cover cropping, your that organic matter level is going to come down over time. So I feel like most of most of the the people the the no-till growers who are not cover cropping, they're adding so much organic matter from uh, building the soil up that I mean, to my mind, they're all it's almost like they're growing a cover crop somewhere else and just and bringing it to their fields instead of growing the cover crop on on their, their actual beds and, and then, and then having to till it into the soil mm. because Hedda's, you know, one thing I really liked about Hedda, she talked about how, she, you know, she doesn't have an a, a big area and a, a lot of the growers interviewed for this book uh, are operating on very small scales, but they're incredibly productive because for one thing, they don't have area. Um, none of their farm is wasted on headlands and turnarounds. And you know how, if you're, if you're working with, with equipment, you, you need to, to leave space for the, the tires and turnarounds and those. Kinds oh, of right. Things. Yeah. That's so valuable land. Yeah. So it, it allows her to really grow on almost, you know, every square inch of what she's got. And the other thing that she pointed out to me that uh, I think that that's valuable here is that, um, she plants very, very densely. Hmm. So not only not only is she using every square inch, but she's packing way more plants into every one of those square inches than than most growers do. And uh, this struck me as one of the things that really applies to uh, flower growers more than vegetable growers, because I think that um, flower growers can pack plant pack plants in there um, at a higher density than a lot of hmm. vegetable growers can. They can pack it in at densities where um, vegetable crops might become leggy. Yeah. Um, whereas uh, I believe it was Hedda was telling me how she packs the plants in to, and she gets a little extra stem length out of it, right? So. Yeah. So she's um, figured out how to make that work for her product, knowing what her customers want for her, or for her own designs. Exactly. And, and you know, the, the, I think the idea is that so Hedda, in, in her case, she's, she's using a deep compost mulch. So in her situation, she's she stopped rototilling things up. So I think that's probably helped with her weed problem. And then she's she's putting on 
in a lot of compost. And so that compost is doing two things, right? She's putting on so much compost that it's suppressing weeds from coming up from below. Plus, it can support a very a very dense planting. I see. Uh, yeah. Plants because almost planted into to pure compost. And and I mean that's that's one thing. Some growers, some growers who are are getting to the point where they've used so much compost, they're getting to um, excess nutrients. Some of these growers will use will make a high carbon compost. And so, um, in fact, there's there's a recipe for it in the book. One of the growers just talks about how the ratios um, that they use. And I, I forget exactly what the ratio is, but it's it's using more or less the normal the normal ingredients that people um, would use um, for um, for compost. But it's just adding it's just using a lot more either um leaves, uh, chipped leaves mm-hmm. or wood chips or something like that. Mm-hmm. So, so you get a, le- it's a, basically le- less hot, you know, it's a yeah. less, it's, it's less fertile. So, but what that means is that if you, if you want to, if you want to keep on increasing your organic matter levels without increasing your fertility levels that much, you can use, you can use a, a lot more of this, um, uh, high, high carbon compost without o- overdoing it on mm-hmm. the, uh, on the fertility. Okay. So you've got to buy the book to get the recipe, but that's good to know. And I was thinking something different when you were talking about Hedda, because you at the opening of every chapter, you list their, their particular method and you list that she does use occultation. So my thought was if she's planting so densely and then she's putting the tarp over, think of all that vegetative matter that's from those, that dense flower planting, that's going to just decompose and uh, enrich the soil you know, while it's baking under that tarp. Yes. And that, that's, that's one of the unfortunate things since I didn't actually get there. I, I, I didn't see it firsthand. But, <laughs> that's um, okay. I'll ask her. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You should definitely talk to her about that. But, um, yeah, I mean, I think, I think I kind of got the impression that Hedda had used the occultation more to get her beds established. And then oh. I, I, I got the feeling that I got the feeling that she was max uh, using almost all her space during the part of the year when she could grow in it. Cause I know she was talking to me about, yeah, her successions from her, from her spring crops through her summer crops and, and fall crops. And then how she would just plug things in, um, you, you know, cause she didn't have to go back until the whole bed. I, 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 uh, think what she meant was that as as crops got picked out, she could just re just replant things in that same bed. Um, and the other the other really nice thing about occultation is that you can just use it as a placeholder, um, kind of like kind of like I am with my tarp here in mm-hmm. Maine, right? Is I could say, well, um, I know I want to grow in that area next year, and so I'm if I just put this tarp down now, it'll be it'll be out there doing its job and keeping keeping anything else from growing there until, until I, I get to get around to growing, uh, growing in it. So I think, um, I think that's, uh, that's what's going on there. Cool. Well, let's talk about one more farm before I let you go. Um, Jonathan and Megan Lease of Spring Forth Farm in uh, North Carolina. I've, I've visited that farm a couple of times and it looks like you were able to physically go and spend some time with them. Um, in yeah. fact, Jonathan's the one who posted on his Instagram feed about, your book and what kind of got me thinking, oh, I better get Andrew on to talk about the organic no-till farming revolution. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I did get by to visit them. They was they're 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 really great. Um they have a beautiful spot there. In fact, they were just they were just putting their their finishing touches on this uh house that they had built. Right. Uh, 
And they were kind enough. That's right. I went and visited them the Monday before Mother's Day. I don't know how they I, I don't know how they fit it in because they had all kinds of stuff going on. But they were they were they were very generous with their time. Despite being <laughs> they a probably time flower growers. They probably put you to work harvesting. <laughs> Yeah, I, I wish that would have been fun. But they <laughs> they they showed me around. Yeah, I, I visited them and they had dinner. And, um, you know, w- one of the points that they made um, that that a couple of the other flower growers made also um, about a di- one of the differences for no till for flowers versus, say, vegetable growing is that um, with flowers, there's no 30 day crop kind of like salad mix. Like, oh, interesting. And, I think one of the reasons this came up is that if you look at the no-till veg, um, what's out there, yeah, on Instagram or, or what's being said about no-till vegetable growers, uh, one of the one of the production models, uh, or certainly one of the ways to make money, is to take to take the um, take very short cycle crops like salad mix, for example, where you might be 30 days from seed to se- seed to harvest. Wow! And, and just um, and just. Crank, crank it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, as, as much as possible. Which so that's that's really that's really um, familiar to me because my, my background is in greenhouse growing, and so um, th- that's what the game is all about in greenhouse growing. Is if you can if you can uh, you know grow a crop in 25 days instead of 30 days by making it warmer, and then you can do uh, you know 11 crops that year instead of 10 crops that year. You'll make you know you'll make 10 percent more money. Right? Yeah, really. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's the same idea. It's just being applied to the, the field or, you know, it, it could work for no-till greenhouse growing. Um, you're, you're taking very short cycle crops and then just, just maximizing them. So, so one of the things, one of the points that they made was that th- there's no 30 day flower crop. You know, I think they said their, their fastest thing would have been some sunflowers, but it still isn't, isn't even, um, uh, yeah, it's probably more like days. 60 days or something like that. Yeah. So, so their, their point was that there's nothing like that in the flower world. So they would, um, just take into account the fact that it's going to be a longer crop and, and to use a, a, a a bed turnover method that was a little bit slower, like, like, uh, like Bear Mountain Farm with their, um, they're just tarping down their bed there. Right. Cause the idea, you know, I should have said this when we were talking about solarization versus tarping Mm -hmm. is that, the, the, you know, the reason that you would want to do the clear plastic is because it's fast, right? I if see. you, if you want, if you want to plant something in that bed 24 hours later, but let's say, let's say you're looking at your bed, you see there's lots of little, lots of little weeds and you're not cultivating. So how do you kill those little weeds? Okay. So the fast method would be, would be solarization. You, you know, wait for a sunny day, throw that tarp out there for 24 to 48 hours, your weeds are fried. And, and it's not even, it doesn't go that deep. Um, I think I personally think one of the reasons that uh, there a lot more people use um, tarping rather than um, solarization is because they're worried about killing their soil life. Mm-hmm. You know, this is certainly you know most of the people who are doing no-till are very very concerned with 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 preserving their soil life. Sure, uh, but uh, I. <clears throat> including the growers who are doing solarization. So I had, I had, a, I was talking to one of the growers who was, who was doing solarization and he was telling me how he, he used a probe thermometer. He went out there and he stuck the probe through his, um, his clear plastic on a hot sunny day. And I, I think I seem to remember him saying that it was, 
130 or 140 Jeez, degrees. It's crazy. Yeah. Right under the the plastic. Yeah, well, w that's interesting though. After after talking to him, I thought about that some more. And uh, w what is it? 130, 140 is that's about where compost is supposed to get to to be to be organic. And you've got all this like you've got worms and all kinds of critters living in that temperature, right? Right. And well, and so his so what this grower said to me. Um, so this is Brian, Brian O'Hara. He has a farm called Tobacco Road Farm. He's also, he's interviewed in the book. Uh -huh. um, so he's, he said that he, you know, he's concerned about this too. He doesn't want to kill off his soil life. So he pushed the probe a little bit farther into the soil. And he said, very quickly, the deeper you push the probe, that temperature falls right off. Because if you think about it, soil is not a good conductor of heat. It's an insulator. And oh, so I, I think that's true. You're, you are heating up the, the very surface of your soil on you unusually hot. And so, um, but I, I guess I was pretty convinced by that, that the, the vast majority of your soil life is going to be fine oh, yeah. for down in the soil. And it's, it's still going to be a very non-invasive way of, um, of, of flipping your bed, you know, certainly less invasive than running a rototiller through. Right. And, and the, the root depth of, of those tiny annoying weeds is probably pretty shallow. Right. Oh, it's gonna yeah. get it's gonna get hit by that solar method. Right. Yeah. yeah. Very so, cool. So um good so to I, know. I, yeah, that's that's a good point. Like, don't feel uh fearful of that solar method if that works for you, if you're in a hurry. And if you're not in a hurry, try the TARP method and hopefully you'll get the same results. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, and and that's that's where I would I would encourage people to do exactly what I'm doing with this stuff is mess around with it, and because um, I I've seen it all working on people's farms, you know that's that's why I wanted to go to to as many of these farms as possible, and I I did about twenty interviews overall. In fact, one one or two were just cut for length. Yeah, uh, you know, finally the publisher was like, "You're way over words." I've been there. It's a tragic <laughs> yeah. tragic conversation you have to have with your publisher. <laughs> But um, you'll use those so, stories in growing for market, though, I bet. Yeah, actually, I, I have I have a finished interview that I did for the book that I, it's, it might even be a little bit long for the magazine. So I'll, I'll let people know. I was, I was thinking I might just publish it as an online article, you know, as, as the, the one that we had to take out of the book. Yeah. But um, but uh, that's interesting. I cut you off. You were saying you visit all these farms and now you're trying all those methods. Oh right, yeah. Well, well, that's why I wanted to go see go go see the farms themselves, is so that if people if people are skeptical, because I'd say that 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 you know going to conf agricultural conferences and just meeting people talking about no-till, people for the most part fall into two categories on this. They're either really interested and want to know how to do it right now, or they're really skeptical. You know, they're like, I don't see how this could ever work. <laughs> right. So, I wanted to, besides the fact that I love farm visits, and this was my opportunity to call these interesting, all these interesting growers up and invite myself out to their farm during the busy time of their year. You know, besides the fact that that I like farm visits, I also wanted to see it firsthand, right? So when I was talking to skeptics, they would be like, "Well, you know, did you really see this happening?" So yeah, no, I, I I visited the vast majority of these farms. You know, everyone that where we did, you know, the except for the few like Hedda where something happened and it just, just wasn't able to happen. So, so I saw all these techniques working, but I think the question is finding the right techniques for your farm. Um, I mean, one, one, one thing that comes to mind is that, um, 
the most common method I saw is sort of what we've been talking about, the deep, deep compost mulch method, where people either, either kill the weeds in the first place with, um, with, uh, with, with a tarp or with solarization and then, and then just use a deep layer of compost to suppress the following weeds. Um, or, uh, or um you know another method that some some growers would use is a deep straw mulch oh right which is ex exactly what it sounds like but the the only two growers that i found who are doing deep straw mulch were in this in the the south or south central okay so arkansas in um in missouri and i think there's a reason for that i think i think if i think growers uh in new england if they used deep straw mulch they their soil would get too cool and it would really set their crops back whereas I think in Arkansas, Missouri, you know, in the summertime, you might actually benefit. You might, you know, you might be in the position of of, of needing to keep your keep your soil um, cooler, which is once again, it's something that resonates with my background in greenhouse because um, all all you know, one of the things I talk about in my other book, the Greenhouse and Hoop House Growers Handbook, um, is that all all the big commercial greenhouses have white floors, okay? Right. Because for because for one thing. They have trouble actually keeping the temperature low enough when it's in a warm part of the year. And also uh, those light colored mulches uh, bounce a lot of the sunlight back up into the crop where the, it, the crop can still use it, even though it's coming coming from underneath. And so so this is that's what I mean about how I think you have to think about what, um, you know, th there's there's a number of different no till methods out here. Most of the growers actually I think all the growers that I talk to are using more than one more and what i mean by that is like maybe they're using tarping to kill the weeds in the first place and and prep a bed and then they're using deep compost mulch to feed the bed and suppress the the the, the weeds during the season so um all these growers are using more than one method yeah and and they've t they've tailored them all to their crop their region their soils uh, their own farm and everything and so so that's why i didn't i didn't think it was practical for me to write a book and say this is the no-till book <laughs> i thought you know what i wanted to do was 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 go out and see what the state of the art was and just report back and because that's that's i wrote the book that i wanted because i, when, I love that no, yeah when we when we um started running articles uh about no-till and growing for market i was i thought oh I thought these people figured out how to do what I wanted to do 15 years ago. And, and so I went and looked for the source. Right. So I said, OK, I, in, in fact, I mean, there's there's one article I can think of uh, that Jane Tanner wrote for Growing for Market back in 20, 2015. So the first year that I had taken over the magazine. And so she wrote this article profiling, profiling some of the growers that we've talked about today. So Jonathan and Megan uh, Lice at Springforth Farm there in North Carolina were in, in that article. And, and uh, Denise and Tony at, at Bear Mountain were also mentioned in this article. So uh, her article profiled some of these growers. And I thought, that's it. These people are doing what I wanted to do. <laughs> Where can I learn more? And so I, I went and looked for a book about no-till growing. And, and when I couldn't find it, that's when I pitched this, <laughs> this idea to new society publishers. I, I, I love said, it. I, I want to write the book that I want to read. Good. And, and, I, and they were, um, I was lucky enough. They were immediately interested. And, um, and, and that, that's really how this whole project came about. It's such a fabulous book. And I, it really demystifies what I've never quite understood, even though people have used the term with me before. Um, so I, and I love the idea of multiple points of view and have these different, um, 
people have kind of hybridized their own mo- model uh, using, as you said, usually more than one method. Uh, so I recommend it. I hope that people who are listening uh, want to uh, pick it up and, and to entice you. Andrew has um, created a special discount offer. So tell us about that. Yes. Um, so we, we created a coupon code uh, that would be good for the whole March, uh, the whole month of March, 2019. And, um, the code is slow, <laughs> all, all lowercase S L O W for the slow flowers podcast. So <laughs> you can, you can use that discount to get, um, 20% off the book. Actually, you can, you can apply it uh, to anything on the site. So if you're interested in growing for market, you could also use that to either subscribe, make maybe. or re- or renew uh-huh. a subscription to, to growing for market. Um, yeah, I mean, if people are, are not familiar with the publication, we'd be happy to send, uh, send a digital or a print copy. Just, just email us. We'd be happy to send you one, but, um, that way you can get, you know, get 20% off the book. Um, if you go to it's growingformarket.com. I mean, it's sold, sold wherever they sell books, but that, that code, that code will work on, uh, growingformarket.com for the month of March. Thank you. That's really generous of you. And we'll, I'll make sure I have, um, photos and links and, you know, all your social places at our show notes, uh, today for, at the, for episode, um, 392 at com. So, um, be sure to check that out. And we're going to have a special giveaway of the organic no-till farming revolution book by Andrew Mefford, courtesy of new society publishers, but you have to go to the show notes to read the instructions on how to enter that giveaway. Um, and that will also, um, I think we'll probably close that giveaway contest um, at the end of March as well, just to keep, because people listen to this in a year, they're going to be wondering where that contest is. So <laughs> we'll, we'll do that. And um, I hope I get to meet you in person sometime, Andrew. I am just, I'm, I've enjoyed our times of collaborating and uh, I really love what you're doing. And I think it's vital to the Slow Flowers community. And I appreciate you including flowers in everything you're doing at Growing for Market. And that's sort of always been a, a, know, a commitment that, that your magazine has made to not view agriculture as just for edible products. I really appreciate that. Sure. Well, yeah, I've, I've really enjoyed your writing, um, both for the magazine and your books, Deborah. And so, so yeah, we're, we're, we'll cross paths somewhere, (laughs) somewhere one of these days. And, um, and yeah, I think, I think Lynn, um, Lynn Bozinski was really ahead of her time. Uh, People may know or may not that, that growing for market was founded by Lynn Bazinski. That's right, who, a flower uh, farmer. <laughs> a flower farmer, and so you know, at the at the time, she was um, she and her husband were running a market garden in um, in Kansas, and and uh, um, they were growing. I, th- I think they were growing veg, but obviously a lot of flowers. And so she really started that tradition of always having at least a f- one flower article. And so we, we are, we are continuing that tradition. Um, I, I just think she was ahead of her time because it seems like, I just feel like there are so many new flower growers out there. I don't, I don't it's know. Crazy. I don't know if you, you know what, what's up with this, Deborah. I don't know if, um, but it, it just seems like, um, it just seems like the, the, there, I feel like there are more people starting um, flower farms now than, than I've ever seen before. And I, I don't know what to, what to attribute it to, but, but I'll, I'll makes, just take credit, Andrew. Okay. <laughs> nice, nice job there, Deborah. Not that I can teach um, anyone how to be a flower farmer, but just, just introducing the topic and, and talking about it and uh, seeing the florists get excited. That's giving more people confidence to start growing cut flowers as well. 
Um, and now that they can uh, do it more productively and sustainably with no-till methods, I'm, I'm, I love how it's all coming together. Yeah. Well, I, I think it's a particularly um, good way for someone to start a farm. And this is something to talk about in the book, just because the the investment is less. I you know I know a lot of people have tried to start a farm. The barriers are high. You have to find land and you have to find equipment. And so if, if you have to, to buy land and, and a tractor, if you, if you feel yeah. like you have to do that, that's setting the bar pretty high. Whereas I feel like with no-till, you can be very productive on a half acre, an acre. And so, you know, I'm certainly not biased against farm size. I like big farms, I like small farms. I like <laughs> right. Big farms. But, you know, people are people who are starting farms, they're more they're much more likely to start a small farm and grow it than to start out with a big farm. And so that's one of the things I love about no-till is that it just simplifies the, the – um, the the capitalization and the equipment side of things. So you know, I'm I'm hoping that no-till can be kind of like a gateway farm for a I lot of people. It. You know, yeah. the people who are the people who are tempted, encourage them to take that leap because they don't have to invest that much. They can have success on a small scale and either decide to just stay small, which is fantastic, or or grow you know grow it over time. But you know, my thing is getting you know to to grow to grow the amount of local food and flowers. Uh, that that people are eating, you know, we we need the supply to keep up. So I'm I'm just interested in anything that 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 can lower those barriers for people, and I I do think that no-till is one of them. It's cool. Well, Andrew, I guess we better end this conversation because we've already gone for a full hour, and we're going to call this an extended bonus episode. <laughs> and I really thank you for uh, for taking the time to to just tell us more about this category that is becoming really essential. And take good care, and we'll talk soon. Thanks a lot. All right. Thanks, you too, Deborah. Thanks for all you do. Okay. Take care. All right. Bye-bye. You too. Bye. much for joining me today. If you want to be entered in our random drawing to win a copy of Andrew's new book, visit DebraPrinzing.com for today's episode 393 and make a comment about the best tip that Andrew shared in our interview. We'll draw one name from all those who comment before midnight Pacific time this Saturday, March 23rd. And to purchase the book, use the promo code SLOW, S-L-O-W, before the end of April. We actually changed the date, so disregard the, the March date that Andrew mentions in the interview. It'll be good through the end of April. I'll share a link to the purchase page on today's show notes. Our second sponsor spotlight today goes to Longfield Gardens, which provides home gardeners with high-quality flower bulbs and perennials. Their online store offers plants for every region, and every season, from tulips and daffodils to dahlias, caladiums, and amaryllis. Spring bulb season is almost here. My tulips are poking out of the ground already. So you'll want to visit Longfield Gardens at longfield-gardens.com. Now let's meet Holly Duncan, who will share her Georgia slow flower story. Holly owns Floretry and is the studio's lead designer. She carefully curates luxury florals for weddings and private event clients, and is located in Roswell, just north of urban Atlanta, Georgia. With more than 20 years of experience, Holly pairs lush blooms with seasonal textures and colors to create sensory floral designs. A keen listener and client partner, she, she goes the extra mile to elevate her client's vision and reflect their personalities, creating a floral experience beyond their expectations. 
Wherever possible, Holly advocates use of seasonal and local American-grown flowers in her designs. You may even catch a glimpse of her foraging roadside for elements that add a special and one-of-a-kind touch to her clients' events. So let's jump right in and meet Holly. Well, I'm so excited today to continue our focus on 50 states of slow flowers. Um, We're doing this every week, and today we're talking about Georgia. And my guest is Holly Duncan of Floratree. Hi, Holly. Hi, Deborah. Thanks for jumping on the line with me today so we can uh, get caught up on what you're doing. I love your business name, by the way. It's so pretty. Thank you. Give us, first of all, give us a little sense of where you are in the map in Georgia and how you relate, like what are your markets? Absolutely. So Floor Tree is located north of, the, of Atlanta. We are a suburb of Atlanta and located in Roswell, Georgia. Um, we are a home-based floral design studio and really refocus on carefully curating luxury florals for weddings and private event clients. Mm. So with what we do, we focus on intentional floral styling. We really enjoy pairing lush blooms with seasonal textures and and colors as well, just to create some sensory floral designs for our clients. And and one of our design aesthetics is we we pride ourselves on going the extra mile to elevate our clients' vision and really reflect their personalities. Um, Because if they allow us to go that extra mile and give us that freedom in creating, we, we give them a floral experience that is always beyond their expectations. Mm, mm, That's wonderful. And when did you start the business? So I actually started in floral design about 20 years ago. Um, It was a college uh, job for me. (laughs) And I I was an apprentice to a really incredibly creative and events-focused floral designer in Greenville, South Carolina. Mm. And she taught me, and as I gained confidence in that design process, she gave me more responsibility, and eventually I had the opportunity to take on clients that she sent my way, and the business really just developed from there. Wow. And now you're in Georgia, and it's it's a, a little, I mean, you're still sort of in the southeast from South Carolina, but yes. it's probably got its own unique landscape. It really does. Um, Georgia especially, the local flower movement is growing here, um, but the south is hot and humid. Mm-hmm. So. You know, we definitely pride ourselves in using and advocating seasonal and local flowers in our designs. Um, but not all flowers are available in Georgia due to that heat and humidity, right. among other things. Right. Uh, you so, don't get all those um, sort of uh, peonies from the north that um, would be happy in the ground in Georgia. Exactly. Yeah, we tend to see the flower farmers offering us a mix of classic flowers, their southern garden flowers. Uh, especially those blooms that are acclimated to that heat and humidity. Mm-hmm. So you may something say, see some things like ranunculus, anemones, poppies, a lot of native flowers and wildflowers. Some of those things that you may see growing along the side of the road, um, the farmer flowers, the excuse me, flower farmers yeah. here will cultivate them mm-hmm. uh, for us. Mm-hmm. So uh, we kind of di- we're dipping into this conversation about sourcing. From your point of view, being in the luxury wedding and event space, I'm sure that you have a mix of sourcing strategies from, you know, the the rose-driven, the rose-focused bride to someone who's a little more uh, willing to let you create a seasonal look for them. Like, how do you, how do you slice up that pie? 
Yeah. Well, when I meet with a client, one of the first things we talk about is the use of local and American grown flowers. And I try to gauge an understanding of their level level of flexibility with utilizing them for their event and in the designs that we produce for them. So if they're coming to me really focused on a specific flower because they saw it on Pinterest or Instagram, Mm. we may not be able to obtain it locally. So I try to determine what that level of flexibility is. And if I can get them to focus on colors that they want in their designs, it gives us a little bit more flexibility. Mm -hmm. Um, And so oftentimes if they're saying, hey, we really want to have this look and feel and it's a certain flower, I may not be able to source that from Georgia, but I'll be looking at some of the other flower farmers throughout America, especially Mm -hmm. in California, Mm -hmm. Pacific Northwest, even in Florida, Mm -hmm. to be able to obtain those designs. And then if they're really set on having a certain one, you know, we just have to talk through that process so that they understand um, we may have to get it... uh, elsewhere and and how important is that to them right so what what is it that kind of led you to this philosophy holly because i uh, if you've been in the business for 20 years you've probably seen it all and worked with uh at a a particular time in your career probably didn't have access to a lot of local flowers right right well i actually became interested in the slow flowers movement as part of my overall affinity towards a green and and more Mm eco-friendly lifestyle Mm -hmm. um I, in fact, spent back in 2011, I spent 10 days on a farm in South Georgia to learn the principles of permaculture design. And permaculture itself is just an an overall ecosystem of of farming Mm -hmm. focused on being sustainable and self-sufficient. So um, for me, it was a personal interest. So I was trying to, to find a way to be able to bring that personal interest into what I was doing uh, within my floral design. So it was something that I sought out. And um, that's how I also found Deborah Yu and the Slow Flowers Movement. And I was excited to see that someone had already forged the path and the way. And it, it's something that I'm excited to advocate and bring to life here in Georgia. Right. I mean, that is so inspiring. I'm really glad to hear that because in, you're walking the talk as somebody who's, who's experienced working on a farm and then just sort of sees you know, I don't know, your own ethos and how you can bring that Mm -hmm. to an industry that or a marketplace is just starting to change, you know, in many ways. Um, Mm -hmm. And in Atlanta is a huge marketplace. I mean, there are are probably more weddings than you can even imagine happening in a city like Atlanta. You have to, I guess, I mean, well, I guess what I'm saying is the more you're distinct about your aesthetic and your approach, it probably gives you some... I don't know, some confidence to say no to people who maybe have a different, you know, objective and think that you can just go buy the cheapest roses at the wholesaler and and call it good. You were talking about your corporate clients maybe being uh, ones that need to be educated a little bit. Absolutely. And, you know, Deborah, we purposely keep the number of our contracted events low so that we can really focus on delivering that superior service. And you're right. Um, we, we want those people who have that same desire and that same aesthetic and, and who want to use those local flowers. Um, you know, we've seen the whole farm to table movement has helped to educate and train the mindset of consumers mm. so that they know that crops aren't available year round. Um, and we see that going a little bit more and translating into the other areas of their lives, like soil choices, but there's still an opportunity to expand this further. Because oftentimes, you know, when you're working with an event client, whether it be a corporate event or a wedding, there are many times when that floral budget is one of the last items for consideration. <laughs> so and it's, true. <laughs> it's one of the first things that's reduced if that budget is tight. So, But yet they always want this spectacular floral display. Uh, so it really is that balance and that continuing educational opportunity to educate 
them and encourage them that there's a value to having local florals that are healthier, that have a, an economic impact for the local uh, businesses sure. and farm, farmers in our area. And they need to understand that the florals do set the mood and create those beautiful moments for the event. And it's what they see in the pictures after the fact. So there is a great opportunity to continue to educate them that florals should not be that last thought when it comes to budget. It should be a major part of the consideration and the conversation when they're looking at their events. Holly, that is so great. I want to just like print that sermon because there, there are so <laughs> many, there's so many people who listen to this, the Slow Flowers podcast who are maybe just um, trying to either make the shift to more uh, of a sustainable approach to their design business or they're new and they are trying to figure out where they you know fall in the in the whole marketplace and just having some language like you just described of how to position themselves with a skeptical client or a budget conscious client I mean just having that language is is part of the the toolbox in, in terms of just selling yourself and and your mm -hmm. designs so that's really helpful and I'm curious, what is the Georgia aesthetic? Like, I obviously you you probably have your you, your favorite aesthetic, but you have to be a little bit flexible on the client. But do you like what would be a Georgia bouquet? Mm -hmm. Well, I think we it, it's that southern charm and that southern style. So you're seeing lush and organic and and flowing uh, bouquets as the trend, and and that truly is that that Georgia aesthetic mm -hmm. is that that really lush uh, garden type whether it be bouquet or arrangement or whatever the case may be, that's, that's definitely Georgia for us. That's so interesting because the very first person I interviewed on this uh, 50 States of Local Flowers uh, sort of theme, uh, Lisa Thorne of Thorne and Thistle, which is in Alabama, she had sort of the same thing to say, like, our mamas were cutting cutting out of their gardens, you know, for, for centuries before we had mm -hmm. local flowers. So it's not it's not necessarily a new concept for people who mm -hmm. are from the South. It, like gardens feed vases and tabletops anyway. Um, but now it's kind of moving into like the professional level of, of uh, the, the floral marketplace, I think. Correct. Correct. Yeah. Farmers markets, gardens, they're big down here, uh, mm -hmm. but you're right. It is definitely moving more into the professional side of things and, and people are starting to adapt that it, it's not now just, the gardens and the farms on the side. It, it's part of their overall uh, event consideration mm. now. Where are you actually going to buy flowers? Are you, is there a wholesaler in Atlanta or are you literally going to farms? Um, what, what does that look I work, like? Yeah, I work directly with flower farms. Uh, we have some farms here in Georgia that are killing it. Um, a lot of them are located on the outskirts of Atlanta. So it does take a little bit of planning to make sure that I'm I'm ordering and it, it, it's more difficult to do a last minute run to get mm. something that maybe I forgot. Mm -hmm. um, but one farm in particular, Three Porch Farms outside yep. of Athens, yep. she, Mandy, they are just killing it out there. So um, she's, she's one of my go-to resources yeah. oh, that cool. I start with whenever I'm looking for flowers. Oh yeah. We've had them on the podcast before. How far is that from you? Uh, it's about an hour and a half drive to their actual farm, so it's pretty far. But but they do do come in during the season for farmers markets, so that helps as well. Awesome. I mean, it's so it's so great also to have a farmer you can buy from who already has a a, a florist mindset and a design aesthetic herself, mm -hmm. so that I can like you must be just frothing at the mouth for some of those juicy bits that yes. they're that they're growing, and you're probably not direct competitors either uh, in terms of how no. big the population is of Georgia. 
Not at all. And, you know, there is such an opportunity to, to build the floral community. You know, I really feel within the slow flowers movement, especially here in Georgia, we're not competing with each other. We're all collaborating together mm. because we are sharing a common mindset and a cause. So no, do not view, view her as a competitor at all. In fact, I love looking to see what she's doing and, and learning from her because she has an amazing design aesthetic. Right. And then you're like, oh, they're growing ranunculus. I need that or you know, whatever yes. it is. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so um, before I let you go, I know you talked a little bit before we turn on the recorder that you have some sort of new features that you're going to in integrate into your um, maybe offerings for clients. Do you want to touch on that a little bit for 2019? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so we have really been focusing for the past 20 years on that wedding client and that private event client. And so what we're dabbling a little bit in 2019 are uh, table arrangements that are being offered seasonally for special occasions. So mm. we just launched our first set of uh, arrangements for Valentine's Day. So we had a Valentine's Day collection that was inspired by the colors of chocolate and wine and champagne and strawberries. And we had a lot of fun designing uh, to those those colors and that the two color palettes um, that encompass those. So we started that with Valentine's Day, and then we're looking at at a new uh, collection to launch in mid spring around Easter time, and and we'll just continue that throughout the year. Wow! And so this is more for the client who uh, would otherwise just be ordering from a wire service or going to their local uh, kind of brick and mortar flower shop. You're you're kind of in that everyday or or event or not everyday, but I guess, special occasion space. Yes, it's giving them a, a choice so that if they're wanting to pay for luxury flowers for Valentine's Day, they're not just going to a floral shop that may be getting um, flowers from the wholesaler. Right. We're, we're trying to select those flowers that are, are local and um, more intentionally selected for them so that they, they have that option. Well, I'm really interested in this theme, and I'm going to circle back with you for um, an article for Florist Review because I, I, I know of a few people like you who are creating collections in flowers that are much like a fashion season collection for where you know for women's mm, fashion. Mm -hmm. I feel like that is a neat way to um, tell a story. So um, more on that. I'm I'm inspired by that idea, and I, it'll be fun to see uh, what you've got going. But maybe you can share a couple photos for our show notes uh, that we'll have at deborahprinzing.com so people can see what you're talking about. Absolutely. Happy to do that. Awesome. Great. Well, <laughs> Deborah, thank you so much for reaching out and, and allowing me to be a part of this podcast. It was truly enjoyable and I love spending my time with you. Oh, I feel the same way. And I'm really excited to follow what's happening in Georgia. I just think there is a lot of energy starting to gain momentum and it takes people like you kind of creating you know, a reason for customers to uh, sort of change their practices. So uh, thank you for, mm -hmm. for being on the forefront of that. And we'll share photos of Holly's uh, work and her social places, links to her social places, so you can uh, find uh, more about Flora Tree and follow along. So uh, thank you so much, Holly. Thank you. Have a wonderful weekend. Thanks. Okay, you too. Take care. Bye-bye. All right, bye. so much for joining me on this journey, seeking new and inspiring voices, people with passion, heart,
commitment and expertise to share with you. I hope today's episode gave you at least one inspiring insight or tip to apply to your floral enterprise. What you gain will be multiplied as you pay it forward and help someone else. Truly, we have a vital and vibrant community of flower farmers and floral designers who together define the Slow Flowers movement. As our cause gains more supporters and more passionate participants who believe in the importance of the American cut flower industry, the momentum is contagious. I know you feel it too. I value your support. I invite you to show your thanks with a donation to support my ongoing advocacy, education, and outreach activities. You can find the donate button in the column to the right at deborahprinzing.com. Our final sponsor thanks today goes to Mayesh Wholesale Florist, family owned since 1978. Mayesh is the premier wedding and event supplier in the U.S. And we're thrilled to partner with Mayesh to promote local and domestic flowers, which they source from farms large and small around the U.S. Learn more at mayesh.com. The Slow Flowers Summit is coming up soon on July 1st and 2nd in St. Paul, Minnesota. More than half of the registration slots have been grabbed, so don't miss out on this opportunity to join with Slow Flowers thinkers and doers in person. One of our past year's speakers dubbed the summit a floral mind meld, and I love that concept. Come and be part of the incredible and uplifting experience. You can make your way to slowflowerssummit.com to learn all about the many opportunities to join us, from flower farm tours and dinner on a flower farm, to business and branding presentations, to interactive and inspiring design sessions, all created to serve you. Subscribe to Summit News and Updates at slowflowerssummit.com. The Slow Flowers podcast has been downloaded more than 425,000 times by listeners like you. Thank you for listening, commenting, and sharing. It means so much. And I'm Deborah Prinzing, host and producer of the Slow Flowers podcast. Next week, you're invited to join me in putting more American-grown flowers on the table, one vase at a time. And if you like what you hear, please consider logging onto iTunes and posting a listener review. The content and opinions expressed here are either mine alone or those of my guests alone, independent of any podcast sponsor or other person, company, or organization. The Slow Flowers podcast is engineered and edited by Andrew Brenlin. Learn more about his work at soundbodymovement.com. Music.